Genesis 4 in your Bibles. Years ago, there was a ruler who did much to, well, help the country that he was ruling over. Uh, He was a person that was known for his building projects and uh, all of that that went along with it. There was a place along the sea that he figured would be a good place to put in a port. And so what he did was he built a city, uh, stuck a man-made port uh, there, built this, and it wasn't anywhere near water. You say what was near water, but it was not near drinkable water. And so they had a project to bring water from 13 miles away uh, to this city so that the city could thrive and exist and, and do what it needed to do. He realized that it was important for his country to have defense. On the other side, he he put up uh, fortresses along the border of the country. He put one that was on uh, a a fort that was upon uh, a cliff face some 1,500 feet up and and even built himself a palace that went down the side of that cliff uh, by multiple stories. He built a, a, a fortress right into a hill. The hill was there, but he decided that there needed to be uh, a fort there, and so he dug into the hill and built himself a fort. Another portion of his country where there was a rather dry and barren region, he was able to build a a palace along with a city uh, around it that was fed by waters and was a thriving place for crops, for trees to grow. The chief project that he had was a place for people to gather uh, to be able to worship. In fact, this place began to be known as one of the seven wonders of the world. He never got done with that project, but uh, as far as his lifetime, but it was a project that continued on and was finished eventually. I mean, this man received from the world the title, The Great. But if you know anything about the rest of his life, you'd say he was not so great. We would know this man as one who was paranoid about his future. He was concerned. He was uh, worried about the fact that perhaps uh, individuals might take over the throne that he was ruling. And so he regularly had purges of people in the society. And even in his own family, he would kill sons. And even when it came to his own death, he made sure that there were laws enacted so that if he was to die, that there were certain people that were to be captured and executed so that there would be some kind of mourning going on when he died. You say, who is this individual? Well, this individual, we would know him from the Scripture for ordering the death of children two years and younger. We would know him as Herod. world called him Herod the Great. And you say, well, why was he called great? Well, he, he brought things and did things that from a human perspective were incredible. Doing things in regions where you would think there's nothing that can be done with this. And he puts in these buildings and these structures and and does incredible things that way. But that did nothing to solve the problem of his own heart. He had a sin nature. 
And even though he was able to accomplish things that we would say benefit humanity and society at large, that he was bringing progress to this, yet it did not do a stopping of sin. In fact, under his reign, sin got worse and worse. See, when we come to in Genesis chapter 4, in this passage, you go, it's a, a genealogy and things like that. There, there's not much to preach on uh, out of this, and, and uh, there's not much to deal with. But what you see in this passage is humanity starting to progress. Society or culture, as you might say, or civilization, as it might be said. As we see it progress, you see things that are being accomplished by mankind, but yet there's still the problem of sin. All of man's accomplishments, the good that he does, the, the things that he does that kind of reflect the image of God as creator that they're having dominion over the earth and, and taking the things of the earth and using it, it does not solve the problem of sin. And for us, as we start off here, we're just going to have two points. I really don't have a theme because the fact is, is the two points are the theme. The first point is this, as you look at this uh, passage, is that the progress of godless society cannot stop the growth of sin. Okay, the progress of godless society cannot stop the growth of sin. See, what we have in verse 16 is what we're going to have is a view of the line of Cain. What's going on with this individual who last week we looked at the fact that he murdered his brother? That he was upset at the fact that he half-heartedly gave worship to God. You say, what do we, how do we know that? Well, he doesn't give the best of the sacrifice that he could give. He doesn't do that. You go, why? Because he's not motivated by faith. A faith that acts. A faith that honors God. Whereas you have Abel, who on the other side offers of what he uh, can offer, uh, and uh, offers this, as Hebrews 11 says, in faith. He believes that God exists, that God's worthy of honor, that God's worthy of praise. And so he offers the sacrifice that is uh, requested by God. And, and Cain can't handle that. And so in the process of being challenged by God, God comes and goes, I'll give you a second chance. You know, if you offer an offering that responds to who I am and shows that you really do uh, have respect, then great, uh, it'll be fine. But if you don't, sin is crouching at the door. And that's the terminology that's used, that sin is like an animal ready to pounce, that when he goes through the door of ignoring what God says, sin will have him easily, and he'll be taken by sin. Very much the case, as you read the story, after God talks to him, Abel to, or Cain does not change his attitude, does not change his ways. And so he's frustrated that God had given blessing to somebody else. He thought he deserved blessing like that, not his brother. And so he goes out in his anger and murders his brother. It's a bloody death because there's blood crying from the ground. It's a violent death. And we're kind of amazed at the response of God. Because we would expect God to immediately take the life of Cain. But God in his grace and his mercy is going to give Cain uh, a chance to, well, perhaps repent, though he doesn't. God gives him a chance to, to be able to at least uh, go and wander the earth. 
And he's upset by this. God says, you're going to wander the earth. You're not going to be able to till the ground like you used to. You're going to be a wanderer going from place to place, uh, no set location. And this is what you're going to do. And he is upset by this because he says, listen, if I go around the globe and somebody finds me that's in the line of Adam, they're going to take my life and vengeance for me taking the life of Abel. God says that's not going to be the case. He put a mark on Cain. Whatever it was, we don't know. But it makes it obvious, and I'm sure it was communicated uh, to the family of Adam, that this one was not to be touched. In fact, if they were to go after Cain, uh, that they would receive sevenfold punishment. That's what God declared. And so we have the story of Cain. But We might not exactly catch what was said in verse number 16 that started our reading here this morning. It says this, that Cain went out from the, what? The presence of the Lord. Now, understand, there's not anywhere in the face of the globe or this universe that you can escape God. He's everywhere. Read Psalm 139 and you'll find out there's no place you can go. Whether you go to the highest point in the the world or the lowest point, you can't escape God. He's there. But it says here that he goes out from the presence of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? It just simply means this, that Cain leaves God. He doesn't want anything to do with him doesn't care to know him, doesn't want anything to do with him, and leaves the presence of God. And so what you have is a man who's living godless, a godless life. No connection with God. And what we have then is after this, in verse 16, right on to verse number 24, is what is it going to be like when you have a society of people who have chosen to ignore God? What's going to happen to them? Are they going to live lives of misery and everything's going to be bad for them, uh, incredibly horrible and everything else? And we get an account of this. See, when you look at this, it starts off that there seems to be the things that we enjoy in this life come out of the line of Cain. Things that are bring a joy and helpfulness to society. As you read through this, you would think that there would be no benefit coming out of the line of Cain. As one put it this way, the ungodly can give gifts to the world. Their skills can benefit others. His lineage, Cain's lineage, is symbolic of human culture with great civilizations and no God. And as you start this off, it's amazing, uh, you might think of this, that here you have Cain and he is given a family. He's allowed to enjoy a family. You realize that ungodly people, uh, godless people, have families. And you say, is that a good thing? Yes, God gave his blessing on families. So this is a good thing. That mankind is to replenish the face of the earth, to go across the face of the earth. It was God's plan. And you see in this that here Cain, he finds a wife. You go, well, where did he find a wife? Somewhere in the family line of Adam. Okay, somebody uh, that would have been family. But he has a wife. And you look at verse 17. She conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city. And called the name of the city after the son of his name, Enoch. 
See, what happens is you're told by God, you're going to wander the face of the earth. And what do you find here? Nope, he doesn't. Because what does he do? He gathers uh, a play at a place, a city. You go, well, there weren't a whole lot of people back then. How can you get a city? Oh, well, a city is just simply a gathering in a close proximity of people with a common language, common activities, common family lines, and they're gathered together in a single location, and they do things that promote a culture, a language, a lifestyle, uh, and different things. And so he sets up a place and says, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to name this city after my own son in the hopes that my name, or at least my son's name, will continue on and on for generations to come. And it is kind of interesting that here you have a city that's being built that's a defiant act on the part of Cain. And you think about later on what's going to happen when God says, okay, I want you to go across the face of the earth and replenish it after Noah's ark. What happens quickly after that? You suddenly have people gathering in a single location and saying, we're going to build this city that gets us to God. We're going to match God. Uh, it's not to say that cities are bad. But here you have this idea that if we collect ourselves together as humanity, that somehow we can take care of all of our needs and put ourselves in this location. And if we just work together, that things can be solved. We have something that can last. The psalmist speaks of this in Psalm 49, verses 10 through 12, where mankind attempts to uh, set up cultures and cities to be remembered. The psalmist said this, uh, talking about an individual that's living without God. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is this, that their houses shall continue forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. Their, this their way is folly, yet their posterity, their children approve their sayings. And you have the psalmist simply saying that the world goes about and attempts to establish something that will last forever and hopes that their name will go on. That who they are will continue on and yet what they forget is that they're going to die reading through this i was reminded of a person in history a man who also had the title of great his name was alexander the great if i have if i remember correctly there were some 16 cities that he named after himself that he conquered Chief being Alexandria, Egypt, but you go across the known world as he conquered all the worlds around him. He's naming cities after himself. I do find it ironic that at the end of his life as a drunk man, uh, at the age of 33, he's crying over the fact that he has no more worlds to conquer. He feels like he's been a success, but yet even in the naming of all this, he's discouraged at the fact that there is nothing to go on. One commentator said this, it is interesting that this name does not honor God, the name of this city. It was named Enoch after the sun. Uh, instead of honoring God, the unbeliever honors humanity. 
You just kind of go, okay, so here's what you have. You have a man setting up a city, hoping to collect people like him and gather them together for the benefit of one another that somehow life will function if you get together in the city, that everything will work. But then you look at this line as you go through it and you begin to find out that there are things that this society brings up that have been useful to humanity. You go through the family line and you have uh, seven generations listed. The last one is significant because we're told who he is and his children, who they are. A man by the name of Lamech. And Lamech had children, and, and you see in verse 19 that this descendant of Cain has two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the, the other was named Zillah. Ada bare Jabal, and he was the father of such as dwell in tents and have cattle. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all that such handle the harp and the organ. Uh, we might say uh, the harp and the pipe, okay, a flute-type instrument. Uh, and Zillah, she bare Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And as you look at these individuals, what they're doing is what we might say they are the fathers of agriculture, or we may say farming, that they're the fathers of arts and the fathers of sciences. These individuals uh, are ones who are smart enough to figure out how to uh, make sure that you multiply animals out. A culture like that, you got much of your uh, clothing and otherwise uh, from animals and to have this, uh, the supply that animals would give. And here's this individual, Jabel, who is at the forefront, we might use the, today's te technological terms. He's at the forefront of figuring out how to have large herds of animals. You have uh, this one who's named Jubal, and he's the father of those that handle the harp and the organ. He's the one who comes up with music. You think about this, that music plays a role in our life, whether we are able to sing and make music, we listen to it, we hear it, it brings enjoyment, it brings things across. As I remember uh, one song director here, things in song are remembered what? Long. Uh, you have music that helps with this. It's enjoyable and it helps society uh, as far as its culture. And then you have this one who is described as Tubal Cain. He's an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Here he is, an individual figuring out before you know, the Iron Age and the Bronze Age, uh, before those things even happened, here's an individual who's figured out how to do these things, how to shape things out of uh, metal and be able to do this. Now, sadly, uh, when you have this type of thing, you think about all the metal equipment that's used, uh, it's going to be used eventually for, sadly, what? Not good things, the building of stuff, but it's going to be used in what? Warfare. But these are all beneficial things. These are all good things. The problem is for society that lives without God, it's that these things become the most important things. That these things themselves become the God. I mean, you just think about the, the people who are involved in the arts. Whether it's painting, 
whether it's music, these type of things uh, that, that people get involved in, if you make a study of these people's life, those things become what they live their life for. And you wonder why there's such depression and sadness amongst individuals like that. The suicide rate is extremely high for people in those type of uh, uh, industries. And you go, why? Because they've lived their life for these things, the arts, and they find nothing there to completely satisfy them. You have people who live their lives like they might uh, be Tubal Cain, that they're involved in industry and they build things and they construct things and they build the mighty buildings that uh, we see uh, in downtown Chicago, things like that. They can build things like that and they live their life for that. But they're completely dissatisfied because that activity and those things become the God for them the thing that they think is going to satisfy. Now you say, is this a good thing? Yes. We're thankful for people who know how to construct buildings well. We're thankful for people who know how to do music well. We're thankful for people who know how to get large herds of animals so that we can enjoy our happy meal at McDonald's. We're happy for all these things. They're beneficial. They're good. But the problem is in a society like this, it's a replacement for the vacuum of not having God. That's the danger of this. It's not a bad thing, but it becomes the replacement when you've left God. And as you see, uh, just following this out, you have these people who are doing all these refinements, these great things, these good things that benefit and make life maybe better. But they live their life for that. And you see in Lamech, who is this last individual uh, that is really emphasized, Lamech, who's the father of these individuals that do this, uh, he's given a lengthy uh, statement about his life. And with all the progress that's going on, with children that are coming up with music and constructing things and doing all of this, you'd think, okay, you're going to have a moral society. You're going to have a good society. And when you look at Lamech, you start off and go, um, society's not going well. You have recorded here the first bigamist. Look at verse 19. Lamech took unto him, what? Two wives. You go, is there anything wrong with that? Because you're going to get into the scriptures and find that even some of the patriarchs, Jacob, had several wives. Some of the kings had several wives. Is this a good thing? And the answer is no, because it forgets the very thing that God started off with when he created mankind. And he said this, that man and woman shall become one flesh that there is this idea that marriage is between a man and a woman and that's it that was god's standard so what does mankind do i'm going to come up with a refinement of this i think this will work better <laughs> yeah you concentrate on the life of jacob and rachel and leah and you find out life was not better for jacob it didn't go well 
Mankind says, you know, I've got a better plan. I can be, be smarter than God. And his original plan, uh, we, we become enlightened, as you will sometimes hear people say. We've, we've come to an age where we're smarter than what God says. And you've seen a full circle of that in the last 60 years where mankind has uh, had a revolution a sexual revolution where they go, well, we've got all sorts of ideas how to make uh, married life and, and all of that, well, obscure because it doesn't really work. There's a better way. Society has been doing that for generations. This isn't a new thing. So you see in this progress, good things happening, but yet you see sin get worse. But it even gets worse in what we have in verse number 23. Sadly, this is the first uh, recorded poetry in the Scripture. may not have been the first piece of poetry, but it's the first piece of poetry we have recorded from human uh, lips, written down. And it's a statement. Uh, Lamech brings together his wives. You know, hey, we're going to have this get-together, and I'm going I'm to let you know something. You know, you would think for family gatherings, usually, you know, we're going to tell you something great's happened. Well, in this case, hey, something great happened. Let me tell you what happened here. And and you have this poem, and it says this. Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man unto my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. You go, what does he do? Well, he just says, okay, listen to me, and I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, a young man hurt me, and so what I did is I killed him. And this goes against everything that you know from the Scripture. You say, what, what happens when you have an injury or a misdeed that goes on? And then the Scripture simply said that it should be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Here, Lamech is hurt by this young man, and so he just kills him. And beyond that, he boasts something even greater than what god says was proportional because look at verse 24 he says this he's speaking again in this poetry if cain shall be avenged sevenfold truly lamech 70 and sevenfold here you are seven generations after uh cain and here you've got this man declaring well if i get offended i mean Okay, God said seven times uh, punishment for the person who went after Cain. Well, I'm saying this. If you go after Lamech, it's 77 times or 490 times, whatever the number might be here of the amount of vengeance I'm going to give back. I mean, he's saying this, vengeance is mine. And he's forgetting the phrase, saith the Lord. He's carrying out judgment the way that he wants to and you say well he does what his father and grandfather does the story starts with the murder it ends with a murder sin gets worse and worse marriage is uh, is no longer really a solid part of society like god said and you've got people that are murdering one another even with all the progress of civilization sin's just gotten worse You know, this, every generation has this thought that perhaps because of all of our progress and everything that we've done and all the things that are beneficial for mankind, that society is going to do well. And the problem is, is that people forget sin nature. 
Last week we used the, the illustration of uh, escalation when we talked about World War I. Uh, it was known as the Great War, where millions died. But if you made a study of culture at the beginning of the 20th century and read what they were talking about, they were thinking this. They were thinking, we've made advances in medicine. Look at some of the technology we have. I mean, think about this. It was a generation that had seen uh, communication now available over telephone lines. You could suddenly hear the voice of an individual hundreds of miles away in an instant. You could see pictures of individuals taken of them. Uh, this really became an art during the Civil War where you had uh, the photography on a scale unseen by humankind to that point and you all of a sudden have people able to see what people look like. You have this technology that works out. You have the ability to record uh, people's voices. Never been able to do. And at the beginning of the 20th century, you actually have mankind slipping the surly bounds of earth. You go, what's that? 1903, you have the Wright brothers flying. Though the flight was only 12 seconds. But they're flying. And, and what people thought at the beginning of the 20th century is that the world is getting better and better and better. Medical technologies are going on. And all of these things. That life is going to come to a point where we're suddenly going to have a utopia because we've got all these good things. In fact, you have churches getting caught up in this that they were thinking we've got to do all these things because then we can bring the kingdom in uh, christ will be ready to come back because everything will be perfect and then event 1914 where you have the shooting of a world leader and suddenly you have nations at war and for four years you have mankind being killed in multiple different ways in numerous numbers Mankind couldn't stop at the end of the war, 1919 and 1920, the influenza epidemic. And we thought COVID was bad, but when you talk about 20 uh, to 30 million people passing away in just a year's time, mankind didn't have the medicine to stop that. See, every generation thinks maybe, maybe at this point, if we just get together and we just hoard our resources, we get together and our cities can solve all of our problems, our scientists can do this, that somehow life will be great and they forget that they are living life without God. And when you live life without God, you're going to find that you're going to be completely dissatisfied and you're going to find sin get worse and worse. You say, well, that's a great passage, uh, Pastor. Thank you for the encouragement, and we will go away now. But this passage gives us a, a, a small turn here, and it oftentimes gets missed. It's just two verses. I mean, we, we have this section here, we have uh, this whole thing that starts off here with our, our idea that the progress of human or godless society cannot stop sin. But on the other side of verses 25 and 26, you have this, the proclamation of the godly will point society to God doesn't guarantee their salvation, but will point society to God. 
See, the story shifts, okay? And verse 25 suddenly goes back to the time when Cain's alive. You've gone seven generations here, and you've gone hundreds and hundreds of years. You go, how do you know that? Because you think about this, if there are any length of the, the same that we find in chapter 5, these people are living almost a thousand years in some cases. So you've gone through seven generations of individuals that are listed by the time we get to, to Lamech's children, and suddenly the story shifts back to now Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve have a son. Verse 25. She bare a son, called his name Seth. And this is what we have here, the explanation of the name. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. What she's saying here is, okay, the line of Cain didn't do so well. In fact, Cain is living like his father, the devil. He's doing this. He's left God. He's abandoned God like Satan abandoned God. He's just following this. Now suddenly I have this next son and God has given me the son. And this one is appointed or granted to me by God as another seed. A seed that might be an answer to the one that's following after the devil. You go, okay, that takes some faith at her point, on, on uh, her point. And then you follow the story down. We only go to two persons here. Because you get to the next chapter, you're going to have all the line uh, gone through in great detail. But the story here just gives us, okay, you have Seth. And Seth has a son by the name of Enosh. Enos is that we read it in ours, but Enosh, which just simply means weak. It's a name for mankind and their weakness. And this is the son, name of the son. But then after this, that at this point where Seth has a son, it says this, that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now you go, well, wait a second. Weren't Adam and Eve at this point knowing who God was? Didn't they believe in God? Did they not call upon him at that point? And the answer is, yeah, they, they did know God and they followed and believed in him. And Seth, the same way, uh, it seems like. And Enosh, it says at this point in his life that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now for us, we have to understand what that word call can mean. It's a word that is used in multiple different ways in our scripture, but it can mean, first of all, what we would say simply pray. Okay, that would be one way of viewing that word, that they pray, that they're coming before God and, and coming and making their requests known. And it's a way that this term was used quite often through the Old Testament. But this word can also be used this way. It can be used to describe a proclamation. You're proclaiming something. That at this point, men began to proclaim the name of the Lord. And you say, well, why do they have to proclaim the name of the Lord? Well, think about the society that is surrounding them. A society that their grandfather has said, we're abandoning the knowledge of God, we're leaving him behind, we're going our own way, and you now have a generation of people that are called upon to proclaim the name and you go what do you mean by the name the name when you see that statement when someone declares the name of somebody they're declaring the character behind it 
everything that person is and so what you have is that in this generation of seth and the enish that you have individuals in this line that are declaring what god is and who he is they're declaring who he is to a generation of people who have no knowledge of god or they've chosen to abandon that knowledge of god and you're going to have this throughout and this line eventually is going to be the last of this line is noah who's going to be proclaiming the name of the lord and that he is going to be bringing judgment you're going to have in this line of seth eventually a guy by the name of enoch who is going to be preaching as you read in the book of job to the ungodly you know what do you mean by the ungodly people who have abandoned god he's going to be a preacher of righteousness See, what happens is an answer to a society that though it has great things going on as far as benefit for mankind, the problem is sin. You go, why is there a problem with sin? Because mankind has chosen to ignore God, to run from God, to leave him behind. And what you have at the beginning of this story is that, okay, you do have a society of people that have ignored God and God has a group of people that are going to proclaim who God is. They're going to lift him up, and that is going to be the need of this society. I mean, they don't need more information on how to build things. They don't need more information on how to make things better. Uh, they just need this. They need to know who God is and get right with him. They need to know they're standing with him and be aware of that and so what you have is that the proclamation as we said at the beginning of this that the proclamation of the godly will point society to god they'll at least have to pay attention to him you think about the last of the line of seth uh, when you get to noah and he's at least pointing people to the fact there is a god who's going to cause it to rain and bring judgment upon this and he's pointing society to it you said no one got saved though in our use our vernacular but what's he doing he's lifting up god for them to see he's doing what he's supposed to be doing in a society that has all the benefits of well music and art and architecture and all of these things and raising of animals and farming they have all the benefits of this but their greatest problem is this they don't know their god And you know what God expects us from generation to generation to do after this? We live in societies that have abandoned God. And they can do great things. I mean, I'm thankful for medicine. Thankful for the benefits of that. I'm thankful for individuals who know how to construct vehicles to get us from one place to another quickly. And I'm glad we didn't live 100 years ago when it would take forever to get one from one place to another in a rough-riding wagon. Now you can ride in the smooth comfort of your car to get from one place to another. I mean, we've got all these things that are wonderful, but the fact is, is you look at our society and it's waxing worse and worse. I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture here. Turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3 is a passage where the Apostle Paul was writing his last note, his last letter. And he's writing to a young man who he had the opportunity to point to Christ. 
seems like this young man was a child in the faith, as the Apostle Paul called him, was someone that got saved in Paul's ministry. And this young man was a pastor in a church that was facing difficulty. The persecutions of Rome had started to grab Christians around uh, uh, the empire at that time and bring them to court for execution. And Paul made this statement to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, it says this, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. You say, what's perilous? I said this a couple weeks ago. It's a word used to describe uh, the wildness of a demon-possessed individual. It's used as the maniac of Gadara, where he's able to tear off uh, the chains off of his body like they are nothing, and he howls uh, in the middle of the night, and everyone's afraid of him, and it's a frightening time. And that's what he uses to describe the times that Timothy is in. Now realize, Timothy was written to 2,000 years ago. And he says, listen, these are the last times. They're perilous times. And verse 2, for men, how is society going to be? Men's going to be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Does that not sound like today's society it's it's there and it, it, in, in generation for many of you you've sat and thought i never thought we would get to this level of morality or immorality in our society i mean timothy's day was no worse they, they lived in a society that had built great roads all roads lead to rome they had built some of the most wonderful structures uh, to help mankind. Uh, the water system of the day of the Romans was better than any water system of getting water to people than any other time in human history. I mean, great benefits, but yet you lived in a society that didn't know who God was. He was unknown to them. And this is what it looked like. You look at our generation of people, though there are some that proclaim a form of godliness in verse 5, they deny the power thereof. We live in societies that would call themselves Christian, but they know very little, if anything, about anything about God. And you say, well, what's supposed to happen to this? Uh, what is a person that is a follower of God, how are they supposed to respond to this? You have, as Paul goes through, verse 10, he says, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, charity, and patience. You've known these things. You've seen how a Christian functions in that type of environment. But verse 12 says this, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You go, why is there persecution going on in our world today? Because you have a whole group of people that are godless, and they don't want to hear the voice of people who are following God. It's the battle that was promised right from the beginning to Eve that there was going to be this war between one line and another line of people. Two groups, diametrically opposed. And, and so we shouldn't be surprised that if we suffer persecution and difficulty. And verse 13 says this, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So what's the answer to a world that seems to be 
flinging itself out of control. Verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then you have this passage, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You have everything in you need because you have a knowledge of God given to you in the Scriptures. You know what can bring salvation. Okay, mankind's always talking about bringing rescue and salvation to mankind. Well, here you have in the Scriptures everything a person needs for salvation. It's found in God, who He is, what He is like, and what He has done. He sent His Son into this world. And so for us, we live in a generation, you go, well, what do I have to offer to a generation like this? The Word of God. The Word of God is the solution. They can have a knowledge of God. This was something that a young man back in the early 1920s by the name of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had to struggle with. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones eventually became a preacher that was well-known throughout Wales and then preached in a Westminster Chapel, which is two blocks south of where Buckingham Palace is at. He was a preacher well-known uh, through the 20s to the uh, 70s for preaching in the city of London. But he didn't start off as a preacher. He actually started off as a doctor and a very promising doctor. He went to St. Bart's, which is one of the premier uh, medical institutions in England. And when he was there, he processed through very quickly. In fact, by his mid-20s, he had already come up with several different documents of things that he had studied and figured out as far as the human body and some of the diseases of it. And they had already gotten published by journals. By the age of 24, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the assistant to the king's physician a man by the name of Lord Horder. Lord Horder was the doctor for the king. Now that also meant that he was the doctor for a lot of prominent other individuals in society. And so what this allowed for was that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was able to go through and be a part of a practice that saw all sorts of people come through. There were three prime ministers that were a part of that practice, were patients of that practice along with the artists and the musicians of the day and the head of banking, uh, banking companies, or excuse me, banks around the world, were patients of Lord Horder, which means Martin Lloyd-Jones was an individual that sometimes would see them. And what this did for Martin Lloyd-Jones was for him to begin to recognize the human condition. He was living in the 20s. Okay? Back in the 20s, the thought was still, we can fix people's problems. It's a time of the League of Nations. You get these nations together and you can solve all the world's problems. And, and, and if we just build industry better, then it'll be better for the working class. The working class isn't a, a good group of people because they don't have all the benefits that they should have. If you make their environment better, they'll be better people. And that was the thought process of the day. Martin Lloyd-Jones isn't working with those. He's dealing with what we would say the cream of society, the top of society, the people who are making everything happen. 
He was forced to, at one occasion, with the Lord Hoarder, was to go through all of his records of all of his patients that he had and just kind of go through and list out very uh, succinctly what the problems of these individuals were so that when Lord Hoarder would see them, he could have a document that would just go, okay, this is the problems that they're having. What Lloyd-Jones did as he went through that, he recognized that 70% of the cases that he was dealing with were just simply classified under things that could not be classified as medical. I mean, it simply came down to this. This person eats too much, drinks too much, does all sorts of things to their body that aren't diseases and this type of thing. They're just that way. And he went through this. He's looking at these people who would have been the height of what humanism would say mankind could achieve. And he looked at this. He began to recognize this, that he made the statement later in life. He said this, all the changes about which men boast are much external. They are not changes in man himself, but merely in his mode of activity, in his environment. What he was recognizing was these men were changing things as far as the environment. There was nothing going on in the inside. I mean, he had the opportunity to be at the death of one of the prime ministers, a man by the name of Andrew Bonner Lawha. He was a man who followed after uh, Lloyd George, who was the uh, prime minister during World War I. His name itself, Andrew Bonner Law, was named after a songwriter whose hymns we have in our hymn book. He was raised in a family that was one who, well, knew the scriptures. His mom knew this, the scripture, and that's why she named him. But once he got into life, he abandoned uh, all the things that he had heard. But at his deathbed, he laid dying. And his biographer reported this, there are signs that he uh, ever sought consolation in the, or there are no signs that he ever sought consolation in the faith of his ancestors. He had too much in, in intellectual integrity to turn in sickness to a creed which had long ceased to carry conviction for him, and he died in loneliness. On another occasion, Martin Lloyd-Jones was working with one of these doctors that was a premier doctor in the world at the time, and this doctor was having uh, a relationship with somebody in the hospital there, a lady friend, and what happened is this, that the woman suddenly died. Lloyd-Jones was sitting there with this bereaved man who was one of his bosses, and this doctor asked him if he might come in and sit by his fire for some two hours without a word the distraught man stared vacantly at the grate until every aspect of the scene was indelibly fixed in lloyd jones memory in his own words he said this that event had a profound effect upon me i saw the vanity of all human greatness here was a tragedy a man without any hope at all Lloyd-Jones at this time became grips with his own spiritual condition. He had been in churches all this time, but he began to search the Scriptures and hear the preaching of people preaching the Scriptures. And he became a saved man. Came to know Christ as Savior, and the transformation for him was uh, obvious because he began to see his profession as something he could do, but yet there was something that was needed, that mankind needed something greater than him fixing them so they could go back to their problems again and do the same thing over again. 
He struggled and fought with this uh, for about two years' time because if you're assistant to the Lord's, uh, the, the, the fish, assistant to the physician for the king, you're probably going to eventually be the physician for the king. He struggled with this and he said, you know what? The only thing I have to offer these people that has any lasting value is the Word of God. And he struggled back and forth with this for about two years. And there was an occasion in his life where finally he said, you know what? I need to preach the Word. I need to hold this out rather than fixing people's medical problems. There was an occasion where he had a friend that came into town and that friend came into town and they friend said i want to go see what's going on in london let's go see some shows uh, in london and so they went uh, to a place and and saw some sort of theater production with music and all of this and he said he sat through this and was just kind of like well i'm here with my friend but i'm just like looking at this and going this is empty because it really has no eternal value to it and he walked outside after all the loud music that was there and he's walking down the sidewalk and there's a Salvation Army band there playing a bunch of hymns. Salvation Army is not what it used to be. Salvation Army, they used to have a band and what they would do is call people to come to salvation. That's why they were called the Salvation Army. And he said that he walked past this and suddenly as he heard this, he made this statement, I knew that these were my people. I've never forgotten it. There is a theme in one of the operas, Townhazer, the two pools, the pool of the world and the course of the pilgrims, the contrast between the two. I have very often thought of it. I know exactly what it means. I supposed I would have enjoyed the play when I heard this band, the hymns I said, these are my people. These are my people I belong to. I'm going to belong to them. I'm going to be a part of them. And he gave up his practice to go to, and this is what was shocking to people, was that he left London where he was uh, there working, and he went to a small seacoast town that was uh, almost completely unemployed, and he went there to preach in a very small church because he figured those people needed the gospel just as much as the people in London, and he went there to preach, and he then went from there. This is not a sermon that is saying to you that you have to give up what you're doing in life to become a preacher. But I am saying this, that you ought to realize that the most important thing you can be doing for people, even though you may be doing good things to help them out, you're fixing things that they have. You're taking care of problems that they have. You're getting them products, products that they need for house and home. You're getting these things done. You're doing that kind of thing. You're being beneficial to society. That's good. But what's the most important thing you can be doing for the people around you? Is it the job you're doing? Is it the activity that you're a part of? Or is it this? that like the line of Seth, they began to proclaim the name of the Lord. They held that up. That's the most important thing you can do. Buildings that you construct, products that you make, things that you do will eventually fall apart. People won't remember your name in a generation or two if they even remember you in this generation. 
But if you lift up God for them and His Son, Jesus Christ, and they see Him and turn to Him, do you realize that's the thing that has eternal value? That you're lifting Him up for souls and individuals who have turned their back on God or ignoring Him. They don't know Him. And the best thing you can do for those that you're working with or that you're in your family is for you to proclaim, to hold up, declare the name of the Lord. Declare who God is for people to see and what He has done to save and rescue them from their own sin. And you'll find that individuals in this world will be looking at their sin. They may have accomplished great things, but they're looking at their own helplessness and their own self-destructive habits and who they are. And what they need is not more products, more goods. They need God. And so we need to be people that are seeing our life as one that is holding up, proclaiming the Scriptures that we know, so that people that were around can at least know who God is. Even though the society we live in has abandoned God, at least they can hear of Him and know Him. And so that's the, the, the process as you go through this passage. That's what's important. That's what Moses is emphasizing. You may live in a godless society, but here you have a people who are proclaiming the name of the Lord. And this is what God has called His people to do 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, today. To hold up the name of God, a society who's accomplishing great things, but is without God. That we hold up the name that is the only name that can save. And that is God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be people to see this truth. We can at times shake our head and go, what's going on in our world? And we just need to recognize that's what happens when a society and a world uh, looks to themselves for the answers, that they ignore God, that they don't look to Him for help. Lord, we have a responsibility as ones who know Your Scripture. And as a result of knowing Your Scripture, we know You who. And we know you because your son has made a relationship possible with you. Lord, may we hold up Christ for people who are destroying themselves. That their sin is just getting worse and worse. Their offenses against who you are and what you've declared just continue to pile up. Lord, may we lift up Christ whether it be in our workplace, whether it be in our family, whether it be just in our community that we cross paths with, that we lift up Christ. Our responsibility is to point people, proclaim your name. What they do with that is not our responsibility, but we pray that you would have people see you and know you, become followers of you, Become your children. May we do our work in proclaiming the name, the only name given amongst men whereby they may be saved. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you we can know you. 
We thank you for the great gift of your mercy. May we share it with others. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.